When I started writing Naked Lunch, people offered their opinions. Disgusting, they said. Pornographic, un-American trash, unpublishable. Well, it came out in 1959, and it found an audience. Town meetings, book burnings, and an inquiry by the state Supreme Court. That book made quite a little impression. Now, 30 years later, Hollywood, in its infinite wisdom, has turned it into a movie. 30 feet tall, in living color. Cover your eyes, America. Run for your lives! Ladies and gentlemen, centipedes and mugwops. Welcome to another edition of Nick's Nonfiction, soft non for this edition. You're here with your host, comic Nick Muniz. Today we've got William Burroughs' Naked Lunch. It's a novella, highly embellished, dancing the line of fiction. Bill Burroughs here was the king of the beatnik generation, much like our boy Jack Kerouac. He's going totally off the rails. The movie Naked Lunch is banned in the United States. Can't get it on Amazon. It's illegal to stream. The book burnings begin. If you have your own pirate ship you frequent, I strongly encourage, if you can handle it, that is, in the second line of the movie, they drop the clink word. That's just what they call the Asian chef. They say fragateer the whole time. Look at the cover art for the show. It's a dropper and a spoon. This is about Interzone City and the beatnik generation of the 50s. Will is best known for his dialogue. We're going to try to retell these stories that go outer space, insect world. My mugwops out there, shout out. (laughs) Jack Kerouac, you remember his beatnik friends hey buddy boy you like a bit off the cob there where you're just driving pearls all of them embraced a love of drugs jazz and alcohol these were the original hipsters who then gave birth to the hippie movement of the 60s you see unlike those slackers we like to keep a slick shaved chin no nonsense i'll zonk you right on the head old sport you look like one of those flapper dappers, my lady. Why don't you come on over here and give me a taste of those candy lips? These guys spoke in riddles. Burroughs has some of the most famous quotes in literature. Hustlers of the world, there's one mark you cannot beat. That is the mark inside. And you remember Kerouac's zany gang of beatniks. Plenty of characters today. We've got Dr. Benway, the sadistic surgeon who enjoys torturing his parents. Got AJ, the covert intelligence agent operating under the guise of a practical joking playboy. Move over, Carlo Marx. Here comes Danny the Discmouth. We got the Rube, the Vigilante. This is not just smut for the sake of smut. <laughs> You're not going to believe where this book goes today. Our boy was a boozer. And every one of these little outlandish tales come back to some sort of satirical comment on society. Allen Ginsberg, one of these other big beatnik writers, called Burroughs the greatest ironic essayist since Jonathan Swift. Remember Jonathan Swift's modest proposal? We'll get to that today. Burroughs said, there's no drag like a US drag and our habits build up with the drag. I hope you have your one-way ticket, and by that I mean a hot shot of heroin, about the author. Is coming up right after a word from our sponsors. No, 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 no. That's what I wanted you to think. What are you talking about? Yeah, I scammed you, man. Took you for a ride, Jack. You thought you were a big wheel till you found out squares don't roll, man. Dig this, Hepcat. The stew man spun you round like a Bill Evans 45. Wait, what's happening? I'll tell you what's happening, Brian. The whole family's becoming Jack Kerouac's insufferable friends. No one wants us at their apartment party, you dig? Get hip to that daddy or skit scared out of the house. Make sure you guys are on that Patreon page, patreon.com slash the niche. You're seeing me hiking massive mountains and my actual face telling jokes. You miss out on half the fun. Also, Instagram, Harry Schwant. Make sure you follow it. William Seward Burroughs II. 
Born 1914 to 1997, he's an American writer, visual artist, spoken word performer, and chaos magician. He's credited as a primary figure of the Beat Generation, along with Ginsburg and Kerouac, who was also briefly known as pen name William Lee. That's actually what he goes by throughout the narrative in Naked Lunch. And the movie, if you've seen that, it's a psychedelic trip. You can barely follow all the plot lines going. That is more of a commentary on Burroughs' life than it is the actual stories of Naked Lunch. Burroughs, he created and exhibited thousands of paintings and other visual works. His most notable type of art he created is called shotgun art. Most patriotic way to paint. Throw a can up on a ledge in front of a canvas. Start blasting away with some slug shots. This is true abstract. We don't need to pay some depressed European to cut his ear off. Let's start shooting some paint cans. <laughs> Comes from a rich family, Burroughs. He attended Harvard, studied English, anthropology as a postgraduate, and then attended some school in Vienna. 1942, he enlists in the U.S. Army. 1943, he's done serving, and he moves into New York. That's when he meets some of those other big writers for the time. And when he gets into a lot of his shenanigans, most importantly, Burroughs killed his second wife, Joan Vollmer, 1951 in Mexico City. Burroughs initially claimed that the shot he fired at her was a drunken attempt at a William Tell stunt. Hey, babe, put this glass on your head. We're going to see if I could knock it clean off. Did he aim low on accident? He only got hit with a two-year manslaughter charge. Never served a day behind bars. <laughs> He's one of our country's few real artists, and you'll see how much he influences American culture with the language he uses. Semi-autobiographical. Takes place in Mexico, New York, and Interzone. We're going to get to this story after another advertisement. Cut in the ad. Do you guys hear everything that I have to <laughs> pin on it? Just the audio listeners? You guys are the best. Not like those creepy YouTube... Li oh, and welcome back. I was just talking to the audio listeners about what a great time we're going to have and how much we love the YouTube listeners. <laughs> Naked Lunch, Chapter 1, and Start West. William Lee is in New York City evading the police who want him on drug charges. He discards his dropper and spoon into a street garbage can, boards a subway train, just trying to give the officers the slip. On this train, he observes all the other passengers initiating in a conversation with a kid. The kid seems desperate to appear hip. Immediately, we're getting some commentary from Burroughs. This kid, he doesn't know what it means to be hip. I am in the moment running away from the cops. This kid doesn't know how hard it is to kick where this path leads down. Lee makes his way to an automat. It's like a vending machine style cafeteria. It's where all the other junkies hang out in their various states of despair. William Lee getting all the update from his friends before he has to skip town being chased by the cops. The gimp he just heard was killed by a hot shot in Philadelphia. It's not some three-point shooter on the basketball court or some sideways shooting gangster. A hot shot is a dose containing poison, usually strychnine, and it's administered to a junkie who they think is going to inform on the other people. So he must have betrayed someone there. Gimp is making it to line one of the story. The vigilante has been going around and picking fights since this guy died. He was the glue that held the whole gang together. The shoe store kid, who we'll later know as Hassan, and the Rube, his buddy, have been trading sexual activity for drugs all over town. William knows he's just going to become like these guys, being paranoid evading the cops if he stays. And he says, it's not a community of addicts, it's every man for himself. The fact that the police already have his drug paraphernalia, even more of a reason to skip town. Vigilante, who's been doing all these gay sex acts all over town, is caught by the police and he was able to cop on some schizo possession case. That's what they called it on the record, which is not a real charge. They think he rubbed down some sort of um, lawyer trading sexual favors for police work as well. It's a pretty good form of currency. Vigilante in this vending machine cafe is just babbling nothings about hangings that he's been watching. This guy's inaudible. His violence has become a compulsion in Lee's point of view. 
This is like Jack Kerouac going, whenever I go to a new town and I feel like I need to start stealing, that's when it's time to hit the road. Later in the book, the vigilante is sentenced to a federal mental institution. William Lee is saying this guy's body and mind is going to deteriorate further, whether he's in prison, a mental institution, or on the streets. All of it is a decline. Lee is ready to beat town, and the only one ready to leave at the exact moment is the Rube. So they head down to Philadelphia. Of course, they're trying to score some drugs and get caught picking up from a cop. And the reason this happened, William says, is that the Rube has a mark inside, which makes him a social liability. He can't... The guy's unable to control his essential cravings, like... um, If you're addicted to chicks, you're always going to be looking for a prostitute, even. is marking him as a dangerous travel companion, so he ditches this guy inside of the cell and beats town. But William, first, when he's in the holding cell with all the other junkies, he shows them the stash that he's always able to keep on him. This guy's in jail. How does he still have a stash? No, he's not boofing it. He allows a few drops at a time from his shooter to absorb into his pockets, So they're all sitting in the jail cell. William starts ripping out his pockets. He's going, I'm about to smoke these. (laughs) They use a safety pin to, like, administer some of the remnants, extract it from the cloth. By the end of the week in Philadelphia, all the junkies will have heard that you could smoke your pockets. William's released. He's ditching the rube on some street corner and then proceeds with a couple other guys to Chicago then down to St. Louis. And this is when we get that famous quote, There is no drag like the U.S. drag, and our habits build up with the drag. Stocked up on more drugs in Houston, New Orleans, and he's headed for Mexico. And in chapter one, they're approaching the border. They meet this guy, Bradley the Buyer. It's a notorious narcotics agent who has a contact habit. He looks and acts like a junkie, but he works on the side of the law, and his fix involves rubbing his body against addicts in exchange for letting them slip drugs across the border. The district supervisor once had to call in the buyer to talk about his contact habit, and the buyer begins rubbing against his supervisor, and he was released because there's no evidence the guy was rubbing against him. He took his boss to court. Lee gets cocaine, or what they called C, with a little bit of speed now. They're on their way to one of their buddies' facilities. Take it to chapter 2, Annexia. The story already goes into a state of limbo, where William sometimes remembers who he is and who he's not. It, like, switches between third and first person. So they finally make it down to Dr. Benway's facility in Mexico, Lee thinks he's been assigned to do work for Dr. Benway of Islam Incorporated. Some psychotic grandeur of delusion. He thinks he's like an agent. (laughs) And he says Benway is an expert on all phases of interrogation, brainwashing, and control. This guy's supposed to be a rehab doctor. And he thinks he's going to go learn how to manipulate people. You ever seen um, Shutter Island? There's very heavy parallels between these two. In that movie, Leonardo DiCaprio gets sent to a mental institution island, and they're saying, you were just inpatiented. And he's like, no, I fought in World War II. I was a detective after, and I'm here to try to talk to one of the killers. Like, nah, you're a patient. (laughs) You don't know who to believe throughout that two-hour film. Lee and Benway meet as, I guess, he is inpatiented or learning his interrogation tactics. Benway says his favorite part of torture or advanced interrogation is when a subject is taken too far to the point where they accept their punishment as if they deserve it. And this is another one of like William Lee's famous lines. He's saying, at some point, every undercover agent eventually starts to believe their own persona. That'll definitely become relevant again later. Lee is then given a tour of Benway's facility, which is called the Reconditioning Center in Freeland, Mexico. All the names are super on the nose. He discovers these treatments that are pretty much torture themselves. But what do you... You've seen a clockwork orange? Those guys are addicts. You have to be tortured to get out of the state of pleasure. Along the tour, he's watching people get administered with experimental and hallucinogenic drugs for super mild conditions just like catatonia 
depression they're giving people dmt he performs sloppy and unnecessary surgeries he's using psychoanalysis for subjects to forget their own identity what is rehab it's basically just hypnotism <laughs> lisi's a german doctor working on one of benway's patients carl Carl hallucinates images of decaying buildings, menacing jungles overreaching it. He's saying, The streets are strewn with broken condoms, empty H-caps, and KY tubes. They had lube back then. <laughs> He's like foreshadowing Interzone City. Undertones. Also, this Carlito guy is also the same person as Joselito another character so that is exactly the plot of shutter island near the end of the tour benway shows lee the electronic brain of the facility and he just decides to go berserk <laughs> he's like slamming every button in the control room what winds up happening is all the inmates get released benway and lee are able to escape into a helicopter it's just conveniently there you see the tall tale start Lee and Benway are watching the asylum from above, and it turns into complete anarchy. The prisoners are running the asylum. People are being raped out in the courtyard. Lee's just, like, dumbstruck, staring at the guy and looking back down. This is your facility. You're letting everybody break everything. Benway's only response is, I need more funding. <laughs> Nothing's ever going to happen unless I get more money. He says, unless the government will acknowledge that we have a problem, there's never going to be an answer to the problem. And this goes along with William Lee's entire analyzation. All these rapists in the streets, man, are just the junkies slipping through the cracks. Obviously, they're not going to land back down. Lee starts making his way to North Africa, which is where Inner Zone is supposed to take place. It is beyond space and time. It is the Twilight Zone. Let's go to Chapter 3, The Rumpus Room. <laughs> Willie the Agent is now in Hassan's shoeshine shop and Benway is going through detox with these guys. Everybody like from his consciousness is uprooted and placed in uh, interzone. He experiences paranoia, hallucinatory nightmares while his buddy is talking about a slightly short Arab that he's been fixated on. These boys are in the K-hole together. The book, again, shifting in and out of third person. He's taking on a couple alter egos. Dr. Benway did fly with Lee to Inner Zone. He's going to go back on his own time. Benway is just in the lavatory, and he impromptu finds some lady to perform surgery on. <laughs> you want a quick tit job, ma'am? He's using unsterilized cleaning instruments to open this lady up and then gets the toilet plunger and starts massaging her heart with it. <laughs> Maybe this is all supposed to represent like a routine bathroom abortion. We're really big in the 50s. He leaves the bathroom like sweating. Oh, I just did a great thing in there. Toilet plunged a lady's heart. William Lee's like, what's the point of this? <laughs> Benway's quote there, Soon we'll be operating by remote control on these patients. I'll never need to get my hands in there. The skill is going out of surgery. Benway has had countless patients die on the slab, and he's always caught up in his own skill. <laughs> it's later known only to William Lee that the patient died in the bathroom. He went back in to wash his hands, and Benway's out there telling a bunch of other ladies, Yep, it's all in a day's work. I just saved a life. <laughs> Benway at one of the uh, interzone hospitals is giving a lecture for them in a full auditorium and they're letting him do a live operation says it has absolutely no medical value <laughs> during the surgery a man jumped from the audience with a scalpel Benway had to call in the orderlies to drag him away and he shamed him first he goes this man is an espontaneo this is one of those audience members at a bullfight who try to jump into the ring and get into the action. I didn't know people heckled friggin' live surgeries. <laughs> All the while, Lee is, like, moving on to his next step of detox. He's shooting himself up with Yucadol, which is codeine every few hours. Benway gave him what was called Snorl. It shifts the user to sleep without transition. <laughs> Knockout pills switches back into first person now that he's high 
And he's going every echelon of power from me, a junkie, up to Dr. Benway and even the president of Innerzone have an addiction of one kind or another. Very observant. Lee pulls himself together just barely enough after the surgery to meet his acquaintance, Miguel. Miguel's offering him some black cocaine a step up, it seems like, from what they used to do together, even though Miguel is now sober himself. So Lee's um, radar is pinging. Something's fishy about this guy. Miguel actually looks good, unlike Lee, whose body is deteriorating from years of neglect. And he's like, I don't know if I'm ready to come back from the dead myself and start to be the man that Miguel is. Giving you more of an insight into the addict's perspective, Lee goes to see another acquaintance, N.G. Joe, who became even more addicted in the meantime, the exact opposite of Miguel, and he contracted a disease called Bengutat in Hawaii, and this causes the victim to believe that their penis will enter their body and kill them from the inside. <laughs> you can't punch that up. How do you even come up with this? N.G. Joe also shoots himself up. He mainlines his main vein with heroin because he doesn't want to get an erection. He thinks if he gets one, his penis will turn around and start beating him up. If you get soft, your dick will go inside. If you get too hard, your dick will kill you. This is what addicts have to think about. <laughs> N.G. Joe, complete legend. I didn't even know people stuck their penis with needles. <laughs> I wouldn't even get the advanced uh, STD test because they got to put a Q-tip up your dickhole. Pass. All these doctors in town, inner zone, after that surgery took place. The entertainment for the night is at Hassan's. An orgy commences in his glit and red plush rumpus room. It was one of the most famous settings from this book. The festivities begin when a... Mugwump <laughs> strips a young man and has sex with him in front of the entire audience, despite the young boy's protests. The Mugwump has like a diving board on stage and he takes the boy on top, doesn't stop copulating the entire time, and he pushes the boy out, hanging from a noose. And as the boy swings back towards the diving board, he inserts himself <laughs> in and out. People in the audience are so taken aback. What is happening? They start hanging themselves voluntarily. Lee says a horde full of lust-mad American women arrive onto the scene demanding sex from all the audience members. <laughs> AJ brings out a sword and starts decapitating a bunch of the women. He assumes this pirate persona, and he's giving them haircuts, a little too much off the top, swashbuckling good time in the rumpus room. AJ calls then a thousand rutting Eskimos who copulate with the corpses. <laughs> what? Hassan kicks everybody out of the room. He calls himself a liquefactionist, one who tolerates every sort of perversion within the city. Is a liquefactionist what? You draw the line at a thousand Eskimos having sex with decapitated corpses? What are you, prude? <laughs> you know, readers speculate this is another dream sequence or maybe him tripping so hard. It's supposed to be like all forms of jailing. You're getting effed by the state even after you get out of jail. You don't have a life to go back to. Who knows, maybe a thousand single horny milfs actually did storm an asylum demanding sex. Chapter 4, Interzone University. <laughs> Interzone University features an assortment of barnyard animals just milling around as male students sit on park benches. And this particular day, there's a bunch of them lined up in front of a lecture platform out on the green. The professor arrives late on a bicycle and he opens up with a story about his sexual activities the night prior. Then he starts to recount a series of other sexual experiences. And a common theme throughout the book is all the guys trying to one-up each other with their sex stories with women, but they don't do it with the men. They hide, even though they're all closeted in this book for some reason. <laughs> and that thing when the guy started having sex with the kid on the diving board in the rumpus room, one guy stopped the entire performance and was like, this is nothing. When I was a boy, we used to do so much worse. <laughs> so everybody's always one-upping each other. 
this professor here, Inner Zone U, was encouraged. I got to get a T-shirt or a crew neck sweatshirt that says Inner Zone University. <laughs> there we go. A new addition to the merch line. Check out on the top of the YouTube page. They're out here on the green, and it's an all-male university. This professor is encouraging the boys to behave in dominant ways as baboons do. So they're all pounding with their fists on the ground, <laughs> projecting a perception of dominance on everybody that walks by. Because the professor teaches them, dominance is the only thing that reinforces the social order. Starts talking about if you have a gun, there is no authority. And of course, William Lee travels with a gun through Inner Zone. The professor then interrupts the monkeying around to instruct the students to show him their penises. He's got to ensure that all of his students are biologically male before he could let them continue the lesson. <laughs> what is this? Course evaluations. you got to rate your professor's dick. This professor sticks the landing on this legendary lecture, and he delivers a rambling speech about the rhyme of the ancient mariner. This is an 1834 poem by Samuel Taylor Coleridge. The whole theme of it is how talking is more important than listening. Big old commentary on the academic agenda. At the end of the story, one of the students observes that the professor might have feet made out of clay. And you know, this is a biblical idiom. It's supposed to indicate someone's not living up to their reputation. This guy's pearls of wisdom might not all be polished. Everyone's starting to realize these professors, these guys with the giant sex stories are a fraud. Chapters in her zone university and it's all male. You know these guys are throwing down ragers. AJ hosts a party that night. Live entertainment emceed by the great Slash-a-Bitch. <laughs> this is like a callback to the rumpus room. DJ Slash-a-Bitch. He's going to bring that sword and cut off a thousand Eskimo heads. The entertainment commences with a blue movie. So no one's on stage. It's a 30-foot tall movie screen. Actors are three males all having sex with each other in the movie. They're using an artificial mechanical phallus, which they call Steely Dan. Nothing to do with Aja. Johnny, the main actor in the movie, lights himself on fire while they're all having sex. Everybody in the audience is going crazy. This is the best porno they've ever seen. The film then cuts... The 30-foot movie screen starts to rescind into the ceiling. Johnny, Mary, and Mark are all having sex on fire in person. This was not a movie. This sex is on fire. <laughs> Their bodies disintegrate and explode in a green mess. Another old man then speaks up. That's nothing. Me and my peers back in my day, you should have seen us in World War I. The sex that we had in the foxholes. <laughs> the secondary act to follow this up somehow. A sheriff displays a young man whose penis measures nine inches before they hang him. The hanging and the probo are supposed to show like a lack of human connection there is with media and law. How do you put the friggin' OJ trial on TV? Like I'm saying the implications. We're watching if a guy is going to get killed die and rot inside of a prison. This is one step removed from the Coliseum. We should just go to the rumpus room. It'd be a more fun Friday night. It's also a call back to the capital punishment from the rumpus room. He's trying to say anyone can be redeemed. You don't gotta light people on fire and have sex with their corpse. <laughs> this is the first time in the book Jonathan Swift's work, A Modest Proposal, is mentioned. That was written in 1729, Enlightenment era. Infanticide was kind of big in Ireland at the moment. So was starvation. So he's going, my proposal, if we're going to kill all these babies and do bathroom abortions, might as well eat the corpse. You know, solve some starvation while also getting rid of the overpopulation. <laughs> the crown at the time was like, what is... Is this serious? Somebody exile him. Wait, this is a joke, right? Exile this guy. Nobody knew what it was in 1729. <laughs> Burroughs taking this satire to an entirely new lewd level.
to finish up this insane night of performances, they bring Dr. Fingers out onto the stage. <laughs> and he's presenting his masterwork, The Complete All-American Deanzatized Man. This guy, Clarence Cowie, is carried in by two black guys who drop him on a platform. The man is then transformed into a giant black centipede. And so he rushes into the audience. Everybody's trying to kill it. The scene shifts into a courtroom then afterwards where all the audience members are then on trial for trying to kill an innocent human creature. So again, this represents the guy who was just hung for having a big schlong. The judge eventually dismisses all their claims about the centipede because there's no evidence that it exists. And they're like, no, this guy turned into a witch. You had to see it. Nobody believes him. Just more of this, like, they don't need to hide it. William Burroughs was a bisexual drug addict in the 1950s. The mainstream society was pushing him as far to the fringes as you could. He's saying in America, we like to smash anything that looks out of the norm, even though these threats usually subside on their own. Gotta be proactive. Shoot it before we have to think about this thing that's outside of the box. <laughs> William Burroughs himself could have been targeted for a lobotomy in the 50s, being in all these institutions. They could have just said, you're gay. You lose brain privileges. It's a pretty cool commentary. Go along to chapter 5, Interzone City. This whole chapter basically takes place at the city market, which is where most of the people hang out. It's a parallel to that vending machine cafeteria, and it's speculated by people, academics who read the book, that he never actually moved from New York to the facility to Inner Zone. He's still in New York City. So there's an indigenous South American medicine that some of the people get addicted to. He calls Bainsteropsis, and this is supposed to be like ayahuasca at the time. And this is what that guy Miguel did to kick his habit. And Miguel, remember, gave him that weird black cocaine, it seemed like at the time. He learns down at the cafe that there are some agents within the junkie community who have been giving people ground-up black centipede. That guy just turned into a centipede the last chapter. They're grinding down the prisoners' bodies. <laughs> it's all just like some wackadoo conspiracy, but the point is that this w black thing is supposed to get the drug addicts to kick their taste for whatever chemical it is. And these things exist in real life. They use them in these facilities. You sprinkle a little bit of fairy dust on somebody's weed and it makes it so they don't find it as appealing as a drug anymore. William Burroughs weaving in some real stuff. Like there was this guy named Zooptual, which was one of the names of the uh, anti-acting agent drugs at the time. There's a funeral procession heading through the market. They carry their own coffin inscribed with the words, This was the noblest Arab of them all. Inside the coffin is a pig dressed up in traditional Arab garb. <laughs> There's all these racist performance arts pieces going down. They have everyone's attention. Jody, one of the coffin carriers, describes one of his sex acts that he had in zero gravity. It's what it takes to get everybody's attention. You bring a coffin into a cafe. And he's calling this space sects indirect conception. He took a water gun up into space, filled it up with semen, and then shot it across the capsule into some chick. Indirect conception. It's pretty immaculate if you ask me. The scene then shifts to some old guy who steals the show. They call him the fruity old saint in the city. <laughs> so it's like the wise old gay guy. And he's given them all stories about Jesus, Buddha, Muhammad, and Confucius are all like the same character, slightly tweaked. Deep diatribe ends when someone decides to get stomach tucked inside the middle of the cafe. Another just impromptu surgery, liposuction. <laughs> AJ then shows up. The guy seems to always be listening, and he's always got to top the story. <laughs> Sperm gun, that's nothing. He says, one time I sent out my son to go get a piece of ass. I gave him a hundred bucks, and the boy came back with a piece of the prostitute's severed anus. <laughs> he said he actually had sex with it. He didn't waste the money. 
middle part of the chapter, the members of the National Party of Inner Zone are all up on their balconies watching people have lunch down in the market. <laughs> They're going, our citizens of Inner Zone are so well behaved. The party leader is never specified. It's like implying that the party he leads is immaterial. They bring up the most attractive boys from the city up to the balconies to have sex with the leaders. Just starts babbling to the boy. You know, the French, those colonializing bastards, they exploit their own citizens. <laughs> He's like, could you try to take care of some of the people on the street? President is scolding the boy for consorting with alien, unbelieving pricks. He's like, I'm getting a bad vibe from you. It starts to sound like you are hanging out with the illegals. This is not going to be good companionship for the king for the night. And something they said the king was looking for a boy's time. Again, supposed to imply, this is science class. We don't guess, we infer. You're supposed to infer he wants more than just sex. This old guy wants companionship from these young boys. Strippers hate him. This uh, apparently got to the president a little bit. He holds a town hall for all the inner zone people to voice their um, grievances. And instead of showing up himself, he has his wife go take care of everything. <laughs> so he's straight, I guess. Salesman starts talking about his gadgets during this whole thing. So he's saying, like, the entrepreneur has hijacked the entire social discourse. This salesman did have a pretty cool octopus kit, which is an administration device for complex spa treatments. Like, remember earlier, Dr. Benway was like, these, uh... Medical procedures are getting too advanced. The salesman octopus kit is fully ushering in the age of mixed surgery. <laughs> At this public forum, the doctors are told to fix the sick society. <laughs> so Dr. Benway and Dr. Fingers from before devise a plan to make the human body more efficient by removing all of the organs and making one single orifice to eat and defecate from. This is how we're going to fix everything. Just make everybody into a giant asshole. <laughs> Benway assures the politicians, this is a viable plan. I once knew a man who was able to talk out of his anus. <laughs> the anus, he said, eventually took over the man's entire body and he just turned into one big ass. Benway telling the politicians, yeah, we just need a little bit more funding. It's going to be a asshole utopia. <laughs> I guess if you are a douchebag, Earth is kind of perfect. You go out onto a hiking trail, blast your wrap, leave some litter outside. Next morning, in the market, Fats, this is like one of the sellers of that black cocaine. He organizes a gay brunch for everybody. Something to boost morale, because everyone feels defeated after that public forum. I'm surprised that didn't break out into a giant orgy. Dr. Berger is the famous radio host in Interzone, and blasting over the gay brunch is him talking about his mental health patients and his most recent cured swish. Back then, a swish is a homo. And he's going, this guy was diagnosed with F-word, <laughs> and he's saying we could cure it. This is like conversion camp era. The next uh, guest on this radio program was a guy who was diagnosed with Buddhism. <laughs> Clem and Jody, remember the pole bearers? They showed up for the gay brunch. <laughs> These guys now incite a massive riot in the market. And you still got the president up on his balcony. Oh, the people are so well behaved. In all the chaos here, William Lee picks up work as an agent for Islam Incorporated. This faction is financed by AJ. And he's, like, going to the U.S. Embassy within Inner Zone to get this aphrodisiac concoction. He's saying his assignment is to just sparkle it all over the city and get gay scenes start to pop up. <laughs> Could draw some pretty deep theories out of that one. It just gets more confusing as he's going out of who's a rat, who's a bug, who's a slunk. He's going, some people are Russian agents, some people are trying to dissolve nations to increase their oil holdings in some nations. It's all just like a big metaphor for the corruption in the world. It's not that deep at this point. 
he's going, I'm a liquefactionist. I'm one of these people who are supposed to be able to tolerate anything. But these people, the common denominator of all these different factions, including Islam Inc., is they're all self-interested. So as a factualist, he's going, my only goal is to combat people that are self-oriented. Very noble, William. Let's go to chapter 6, The Examination. Lee is facing eviction from his house in Interzone, and he's got to file an affidavit claiming that he's got the bubonic plague so that he could keep his apartment <laughs> and go down to Walgreens and get some bubonic plague medicine. William is eventually sent to uh, court to deal with this whole eviction process, and he realizes that the judge is a good old boy. He's just telling stories to the lawyers about you fucking being racist and it being fun. William's able to play up this angle, and he's going, oh, I could see us Razorbacks got to stick together, huh? The judge in front of the entire courtroom is like, forget the whole proceedings. Defendant Lee, what is your view on the Jews? Lee is like, all the Jews want to do is diddle a Christian girl. <laughs> the judge advises all of the bailiffs to take good care of Lee, because he too is a good old boy. Really nothing astounding in this chapter. Have you heard? The criminal justice system is racist. I uh, talked about this character Arachnid a little bit. He was a chauffeur in Inner Zone. He's like the only native of the city. And he's also the only guy who is straight and unavailable. And he works for a novelist, Andrew Keefe, irrelevant. Lee is trying to make ends meet last minute before this eviction goes through. And so he starts to try to do some dirty deals with the arachnid. Arachnid gets him a good price on 11 barrels of lube. Those giant drums. <laughs> what if you jumped into one and then slid down a hill? You could slip around the world in 80 days. <laughs> uh, he's not able to flip the lube. He's still getting run out of town. Let's check back in with Dr. Benway. He is back down in Mexico, which they call Freeland. It's all part of Annexia, these groups of countries who aren't part of the real world. <laughs> Freeland is a welfare state. Lee says this treatment from the government is an implicit and enveloping benevolence stifling the conception of rebellion. So as you see these breakouts happen in Inner Zone, it's never going to happen in Freeland because people are pacified. Benway asks Carl, the guy that was bought on stage by the two black guys before, probing questions about his sexuality, and he's trying to determine whether or not Carl's gay. Carl is saying, no, I'm telling you, I'm straight as narrow. Benway is alluding to the possibility of treatments for his sickness. We're like, we're not sure. It's not enough to know you're straight. You have to prove it to the whole world. <laughs> Every day above 25 as a single male, you increase on other people's gaydar just because you haven't spent a third of your annual earnings on a rock yet. <laughs> Benway is like, we're going to have to go deep into your history to see if you truly are gay, Carl. And so he makes Carl jizz into a jar repeatedly masturbate into this jar five times a day and you should be cured of your gayness he brings this sample back in and he's like yep this is the most gay semen i've ever seen <laughs> carl is just like no i swear to god i'm not gay gives him the fifth degree and he's like all right fine one time in the army i kissed a guy benway is like i knew it I knew it from the moment I laid my eyes on you. You're a marked man. <laughs> I'm not sure what the message is here. Deny, deny, deny. <laughs> Along with that Freeland thing and uh, doctor-patient confidentiality, I guess privacy and autonomy are not allowed in a system where every need is catered to. Let's go to chapter 7. This one's the second to last and the shortest. The Sailor and the Boy. Scene opens up with a junkie wandering the city looking for his friend, Rose Pantapon. Pantapon was the name of the opium brand at the time, and all of the images are disjointed, sinister. This kid, while he's looking for a fix, he's seeing gangsters encased in concrete, poisoned pigeons, boys masturbating in alleyways, what he calls crotch spit is everywhere. A very beatnik line. People are either looking for a friend, a dealer, or a vein. 
a sailor sees this young boy walk into the cafe and recognize the boy's fidgets, a sign of his uh, junk sickness. So the boy is sitting there, scratching at bugs crawling under his skin. Sailor walks up to him and is like, I haven't had the coke bugs like that since I was in Montana. The sailor thought that Chinese cops were after him for a month, and his whole diatribe here is to try to say that there is no less place dangerous than Interzone. It's all the same when you get into the city. A couple weeks we have Jean-Jacques Rousseau, The Confession, that Renaissance period along with Jonathan Taylor Swift. These guys thought we're moving away from nature. Every day we move further away from Neanderthals, we become enlightened. This book is all about in the city center. You see the most debauchery, inhumane, hedonistic acts go too far into noble civilization and you start to degrade once again. The sailor is remarking to the boy, wow, you are one good bag of veins. The boy's like, what are you even talking about? I'm into opium. And this is trying to show that even the junkies can't relate to one another. This sailor sees the entire world through his lens. He sees a young boy. He doesn't see potential or a life ahead of him. He just sees a bag of veins ready to be shot up. <laughs> As the scene in the cafe portrays, William Lee's just sitting there with his typewriter observing. He's seeing more of this black cocaine trade hands more of this agent that gets people unaddicted to drugs and this is when he finally writes his famous line about all the rats in the community all agents defect and all resistors sell out chapter eight the algebra of need fats who is the cook at the city cafe puts on a presentation at the city plaza about the algebra of needs. He has been observing even longer than William all of this dirty stuff go down in the cafe. And so he thinks he knows. It's just a great title. Algebra of need. When people start to turn over to that flee the city thing. When they go into their pockets to start smoking. Fats is serving what he calls black meat. Which is another name for that centipede for years he's been watching the city around him and he's been able to help some people like Miguel kick in this city plaza algebra of need presentation he says <laughs> our choice of sex practices has become a distraction like you hear gay guys say this I've been a little bit of a party boy for too long they know it's, you're not getting anywhere by doing this the junkies what are you addicted to gay sex <laughs> Lee acknowledges most people in the crowd are getting this sick feeling, which he thinks is an onset of syphilis, and he is connecting it to that dust he was spraying around the city before. <laughs> of course, this is embellished, like, what, there's magic fucking uh, contrails in the air that are giving us syphilis? Or maybe it's because I won't shove a Q-tip up my urethra. Trying to show how William Lee was one degree off if he stayed sober like the cook. He would have been able to observe some trends better than getting lost in this <laughs> friggin' cops and robbers chase. That might not even be real. And it does have a pretty fun ending here. William Lee was at the Hotel Lamprey. Hauser and O'Brien are two narcotic agents that show up to try to catch Lee. He's already been evicted at this point. They're trying to arrest him on the spot. A lamprey, if you don't know, is an aquatic creature that attaches itself to a shark in order to feed from the scraps that the sharks leave behind. And so William himself thinks he's an agent, and he's like, Hauser and O'Brien are just trying to work my case here. Lee understands that they're trying to arrest him. Lee is going, just let me shoot up one more time before you take me in. They're going, there's no possible way we can allow you to do that, which means they want a favor. And Lee offers to rat on one of the big-time dealers in the area, Marty Steele. Hauser and O'Brien are extremely skeptical because this is such a big name. They let him shoot up anyway. Lee mainlines some of the best heroin he's ever had. And as he is taking it out of his vein, he squirts blood and alcohol into Hauser's eyes, blinding him gets the gun out of his suitcase and shoots O'Brien in the face. <laughs> Lee immediately books it out of the hotel lamprey, 
first thing he does finds his dealer buys some junk from him and then goes into hiding he spends the entire night at what are called the Everhard bathhouse <laughs> a notorious hangout for homosexuals and the next morning he buys a newspaper sees nothing about hauser and o'brien in it his grandeurs of delusion are at an all-time high he calls up the narcotics bureau gets lieutenant gonzalez the highest ranking guy on the phone and he's like hauser o'brien we've never had guys named that in the bureau ever lee is at a complete loss his head is spinning he just bought up as much junk as he could possibly get his hands on in his spiral of paranoia he's thinking i gotta get out of inner zone even though just got word these two characters might not even exist we are right back to where we started new york city call of danny the disc mouth and the rube it's time to hit the road again this kind of ends the main storyline here and william lee even though he broke the fourth wall throughout the entire book he completely shatters it here he's like this was supposed to be an out of order mess of a book it's supposed to portray the blueprints for a drug addict's life i'd say job well done <laughs> the final section of the book is completely illegible people say that um william burroughs style of writing he would just cut out sentences put it into a jar pull out sentences and then arrange them in random orders so this entire last chapter he didn't even decide to try to put them in order some of the sentences read like the start of a very good story he stood there in a 1920 straw hat gave to him by someone else that's it it's the entire sentence it's a better fragment than i could write the last phrase in the book <laughs> not even english no glot clom fly day I think William had a needle sticking out of his arm when he wrote these final chapters. <laughs> I would suggest this book just for the rumpus room. William Lee, truly an influence on American culture. That is Naked Lunch. I want to thank you ladies and gentlemen who were able to keep your head on your shoulders for this wild one. Got to hear some of the most egregious sex acts you'll probably ever be able to imagine. It was a fun addition. Maybe we'll find more William Burroughs, or we'll do some Ginsburg next. And it's a misleading title. I will say Naked Lunch. We have a book called Between Meals Coming, which is about a uh, Parisian restaurant reviewer. And it's more Bourdain style, where his job was to review restaurants. He got paid to take girls on dates. He has all these fun stories, fun characters. Thank you once again, Billy Burroughs next week on the show this might be one of the better ones for the year one of the more serious ones for the year it is going to be an anthology jeff diced put together anatomy of the crash an inside look at the biggest bailouts and wealth transfer in the history of humanity 10 trillion dollars are being printed every year and groceries, the price of gas are still going up. We're talking about hyperinflation, zero interest rates. And yeah, the Federal Reserve is floating the idea of sub-zero interest rates. <laughs> you get free money and then you get free interest on that money just because you own a bank. We are beyond too big to fail. This book is free. It's on the Mises Institute Library. I mean... This is one of the last facilities on earth teaching sound economics. Three words are going to carry the show. End the Fed. It's going to usher in an era of uh, Mises Institute books because I'm making my way through that entire free library. Pendulum shall swing back from Naked Lunch. <laughs> We're going to get serious. We're going to get topical. It was a good time to learn about some beatnik culture. Thank you, the listener, for tuning in once again. I'm going to see you guys in seven short days. My name is Nick Munez. Take it easy out there. Peace.